The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Today's sermon is pre-recorded. The message I want to share with you tonight is not a message that I just cooked up. I think the Lord thinks you're very special that you would be here to hear what he's given. It's entitled Face to Face with God. Mighty God of heaven, I know you call us into your presence and you say, come close. Lord, I don't seek your hand tonight. I seek your face. That face-to-face encounter of Holy Spirit presence and power. 
that, Lord, we're very small. I don't care about that. What I care about is your presence. What I care about is your love and your mercy and your grace. So, Lord, I trust you tonight with all that I am and all that I'll ever be. That you will carry me all the way through until I'm in that place of glory with you. And then truly I can see you, not dimly, but face to face, for that's what I want. I want you, Jesus. I don't want to go to heaven for the gold streets and the mansions. Lord, I want to go to heaven so I can see you face to face. So I can kneel in worship and adoration before you. For you are worthy, Jesus. You are worthy. And I love you, my Lord. And I lay my life down for you, Jesus. I honor your name tonight. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. There's one man in the scriptures that scares me. Every time I read him, he scares me. His name is Isaiah. He has to be the holiest of the Old Testament prophets. He didn't whine like Jeremiah did. The Lord never had to rebuke Isaiah and say, if you'll speak worthy words, then I'll let you speak for me. And I love Jeremiah. I'm not trying to take away from him, but oh my, Isaiah never had to be rebuked by the Lord. He was of a different kind. He was one of a kind in all of the scripture. To me, he is a forerunner of Jesus Christ. Isaiah, the sixth chapter. Uzziah had leprosy because he had dishonored the house of the Lord. He had tried to put together the kingship with the priesthood, and that was reserved for Jesus. He had tried to step into the place of Jesus, and because of that, because of his uncleanness, leprosy broke out upon his face, and he was ushered out, and for the next years, he lived in a house by himself, unclean, never healed, while his son was the vice regent and ran the government. The year he died, Isaiah went to the temple as was his practice. He went to the temple of the Lord to worship the Lord. He held the Lord in highest esteem. Now, many people went to worship that Sabbath morning. Isaiah was not the only one in the temple. Many went to worship that Sunday morning. But as he walked into the temple, he saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. No one else saw the Lord seated high on a throne. Some people walk into church Sunday after Sunday. They don't see the Lord high and exalted and lifted up. They just see a gathering of people. They see the church leadership up here. They drift in late for the praise and the worship, and they, they go through the ritual of their worship service, and they leave, and on the way out, they're headed to dinner. They've hooked up with some friends, and they talk about how the preacher preached. They didn't see that God was in the house. 
They didn't see the holiness and the fire and the beauty of Jesus. All they saw was the stuff. Because some people only have a mind for stuff. They don't have a mind for the Holy Spirit. You can't see Jesus high and lifted up if you have your mind on earthly stuff. The earthly stuff passes away. I walked into the sanctuary this evening. It was empty. Immediately I was aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now many will walk in and they'll say, nice room, not bad, pretty nice. They have no sense of the Holy Spirit presence. Isaiah comes in. Not only does he see the Lord high and lifted up, he sees all the furniture moved. There's only one place that God will appear seated on a throne, high and exalted, and that is above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. That's where God's throne is, above the mercy seat. I praise God it's on the mercy seat, that that mercy seat is between the Ten Commandments and God, because if there were no mercy seat, we'd all be destroyed. But God is full of mercy. And so he planted his throne on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. And so as Isaiah walks in, the veil has disappeared. He's already seeing prophetically that the veil is going to be removed and that the God of heaven is going to sit on that throne in glory, in mercy. It's at the throne of God, at the cross, that justice and mercy kissed. I love that image. So Isaiah walks in. I'm sure he stopped dead in his tracks. He didn't want to take one step toward that throne. You know the first article of furniture when you come into the temple? It's the altar of burnt offering. And always when you enter the temple, your back is to the east because... Your back is to Baal. Your back is to the rising sun. Your back is to prosperity in the world. Your back is to stuff in the world. And your face is toward God. So when you walk in, the first place of furniture you come to is in the outer court. You have the altar of burnt offering. This is where a man brings his offering, his animal confesses sin over it, slits its throat, the blood pours out. It's sprinkled against the sides of the altar burnt offering. The offering is placed after prepared on the altar burnt offering. It's never to go out. The fire is perpetual. As you enter more deeply into the tabernacle, you come to what is called the laver. The laver stands between the altar burnt offering and the holy place of the tabernacle. The laver is a mirrored surface so that you can clearly see who you are. This is where after the sacrifice that the priest offers, he comes to the laver and it's filled with fresh water. And the priest washes. The priest is sanctified. Now, please, let me just go back in theology just for a moment. Conversion is not a gradual process. Conversion 
is instant. It's by faith. It's not by works. It's a supernatural work that God does in a man or a woman. I've seen so many flesh conversions. I've seen the flesh conversions where a man will come, he'll kneel, he'll say, I want to be a Christian. And then he disappears. And one of the things that happens is when he comes to say, I want to be a Christian, there is not an open confession of sin. There is not a repudiation of his sin. There is not room for God to step in and transform him. This is a supernatural work of grace. Okay, now please, when you get to the laver, you wash because you're headed into the holy. You can't go into the holy until you've washed and changed your clothes. That's the sanctifying process. I've been taught from the time I was a little boy, sanctification is the work of a lifetime. No, it's not. Sanctification is done the same way conversion is done. It is a gift of God's grace. It is not a work of man. Well, how is a man to be sanctified or made holy? The word sanctified, to make holy. How is a man to be sanctified? By giving himself totally into the hands of Jesus and resting in Jesus Christ. And the Lord comes in and does the full work of renovation, removing from that man every evil aspect. But we don't like that. In our culture, we say, okay, I'm converted. Now give me a class on strategies for successful Christian living. Help me know, and you noticed in one of the songs tonight, and I didn't have it, I didn't tell my wife, don't sing that song, but I'm in total disagreement with it. This whole thing of subdue the sin in your heart. Are you kidding me? Have you ever tried to subdue sin? I've never been successful in subduing long-term sin. It'll always pop up somewhere else. It's like whack-a-mole. Knock it down, it pops up over here. Well, how do you deal with sin then? You cut it off. Jesus only knew amputation. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Jesus only taught amputation. Now, I'm grateful for that because I'm not very good at subduing anything. But I can surrender that to Jesus and let him remove it from me. Now, please hear my heart tonight. The love of God is so spectacularly merciful that not one aspect of this salvation is of my works and my flesh. It is a work of God's grace. It is something he does for us and in us. We cooperate by resting in him. We cooperate by submitting to him. We cooperate by not rebelling against him. But the work of grace is a miracle of God, both for conversion and for sanctification. It is the work of God. Both are instantaneous. Then why has it taken me so long to be sanctified? Because I love my sin. I don't want to let go of it. Is there any reasonable excuse for sin? If I could come up with one reasonable excuse for sin, it would cease to be sin. It would mean that God was unfair. 
God is not unfair. He is righteous. He is holy. His love, his mercy, his grace. So there is no excuse for sin. And he's willing to remove it. But I have to be willing to let him remove it. So what I want to say to you tonight is every addiction, every lust, every sin is removed in the same way, supernaturally, by the grace of God, out of the love and compassion God has for his children. Now tell me that God is a hard man when he has that kind of love for us, when he's willing to do that marvelous work of regeneration, of sanctification. Now, because a man is converted and sanctified does not mean he's mature. I've met very many immature people who were just glorious images of Jesus Christ, but they were very immature. And frankly, after I've been in heaven maybe a million years, I'll begin to grow up. Aren't we all immature? And Jesus is going to, I'm thinking he's going to assign an angel to tutor me after I get to heaven. But see, immaturity is not sin. Immaturity is not sin. A a little three-year-old who does immature things is not in sin. Sin is direct rebellion against God or rebellion against mom or dad, doing what they know they were told not to do, and they do it anyway. For that, you punish them. You take something away. You reprimand them. You, you set boundaries for them. But immaturity? I can't tell you how many times my big brother said to me, Raymond, will you ever grow up? I'd say, hey, Roger, I'm just a kid. What do you expect? I'm just a, I'm a little boy. You're a big guy. He was five years older than me. Raymond, won't you grow up? Yeah, give me five years and I might get to your level. Now, as you come to that labor, which is sanctification, you're washed. You see yourself in the mirror. You see yourself in Jesus. You know you have to be washed. The blood is washed away. Then you go the next step and you enter the holy compartment. On the right-hand side, shaped like this, is the table of showbread. There are 12 loaves of showbread, one for each of the tribes of Israel, as they are laid out in the holy as the food of God. We are spoken of as the food of God. Jesus said, he's our food. You look in Revelation and there's the white stone and the manna that's in the ark where we're always feasting, representing Jesus' broken body and his blood. But we're God's food too. So there's the table of showbread constantly kept fresh. Then on the other side, that beautiful candelabra, the light of the Holy Spirit shed abroad, the light of the Holy Spirit exposing everything. Then dead ahead, the altar of incense, where the prayers of God's people ascend into the heavenlies. God will not hear your prayer if you're holding sin in your heart. You have to let go of that sin. 
let him remove it from you. Then you come to the curtain, and we're told in the New Testament, the curtain is the body of Jesus that was torn on the cross. And you remove that curtain, and you have the glorious Ark of the Covenant. And as Isaiah walks into the temple, the curtain is removed, everything is open to view, and he sees the glorious presence of God seated high and lifted up, and his train fills the temple. In other words, the train is coming right down through the holies, right out to the laver. And in that culture, the longer the train, the more important the person. So the imagery is of a most important being seated high and lifted up on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. Now, he hears with his ears and he sees there are two seraphs. The word seraph means the burning. So this is this almost serpent-like warrior angel, the most powerful of God's created beings for warfare. And it is burning. It is a flame of fire. He sees seraphs with six wings, with two wings they covered their face because of the glory of God. It was so great. Two, they covered their feet. That is their lower body and their feet because it would be a shame to have their bare feet show up in the presence of the king. In that culture, bare feet were not allowed in the presence of the king. They had to be covered. And with two, they were flying and they were calling to one another. They were singing back and forth to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. But nobody saw it but Isaiah. How many times have you walked into a church and you just thought it was another day and you never saw the holiness of God and you never saw him seated on the mercy seat? I'm telling you now, if you have never seen Jesus seated on the throne of glory, you still don't know what it is to be a Christian. I got a phone call from a man just two days ago. He said, Pastor, my son is a very intelligent man. He retired with a high army rank. After just a few years in the military, he became a teacher. He's an intellectual man. He's a very wise, smart man. Peter said to me, would you pray with, my, with me for my son, for his salvation? He said, I had a conversation with him. And he has agreed that if God will reveal himself, he will serve him. And he, he made that covenant with me. And we prayed that together. I said, okay. Now let's pray that Jesus will reveal himself on the cross. And he'll reveal himself as the risen Lord, the resurrection. Because if this man can catch a vision of Jesus as the crucified Lord and as the risen Lord, 
he will serve Jesus forever. His name is also Peter. Would you be praying with me for Peter that he will have a full revelation of Jesus Christ? I tell you, once you catch a vision of God, Jesus, seated on that mercy seat, you're changed. You can't be the same. Because suddenly the Christian faith is no longer about you working hard. It's about Jesus and what he did at the cross. It's about the Holy Spirit and what he's doing right now in our hearts as he's constantly wooing us and loving us and calling us. It's about what God does, not about what I do. The temple's filled with smoke. Now as Isaiah looks at all of this, all he can say, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Literally, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. I'm a man who has done things out of the power of my intellect and the power of my flesh. I'm unclean. He cannot sing with the seraphs, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, because he knows he is not holy. He knows there is still flesh involved in his ministry. He knows there's still flesh involved in his striving to be what God wants him to be. All he can say is, woe to me. How often I've had to say that. I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. I've tried to do it with my own way. I've tried to do it with my own strength and my own power. Because I didn't think if I didn't do it, God wouldn't do it. But if I try to do it, God won't do it. This is the work God has to do. He said, I live among a people of unclean lips. Yes, because none of them could even see God seated on the mercy seat. They were just there for normal Sabbath worship, offering of tithes and offerings and offering of animals and sacrifices and listening to the trumpets and maybe a sermon. One of the seraphs flew to the altar of burnt offering and he took a live coal in his hand with tongs from the altar and he touched Isaiah's mouth and he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. It's at the altar of burnt offering that we are converted, that we are changed, that we are made holy. It is at the altar of burnt offering where the sacrifice was made on the cross for us. Today the lie is common that a man has to sin until he dies, making death his savior. Death is not my savior. Jesus Christ is my savior. He's the one who died that I might live. So I don't look forward to death to be released from the old man of sin. I'm released from the old man of sin by the command of Jesus Christ and the mercy of Jesus Christ by the blood of Jesus Christ. The coin of heaven is the blood of Jesus. It's what purchased my salvation. Not my dying. Jesus dying. He says, your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. You've been covered, you've been made holy. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? 
And I said, here am I, send me. Now, the clearest indicator, and I've studied for years, I've studied revivals. I've studied revivals in Africa, in Wales. I've studied revivals in China, in Korea. I've studied revivals in many different lands, including the revivals that have taken place in America. Most recently, I'm studying carefully the 1801 revival in Kentucky and the wondrous things that went on in that revival. It wasn't a preacher that brought the revival. He would be preaching and suddenly in the congregation, the power of God would begin to fall and men would begin to confess their sins and cry out in agony because suddenly they were seeing high and lifted up on the mercy seat, the Lord Jesus. And all they could do is say, woe is me, I'm undone. John Wesley said, if a man could see his sin all at once, he would die of terror. Well, I'm not asking Jesus to show me my sin all at once. I just want him to wash it all away. I want to be cleansed totally, pure, clean, by grace, out of the love of God for me. I'm wondering tonight if some of you are still struggling with condemnation about sin. If you are, it's a very clear sign that you've not yet accepted what Jesus Christ did at Calvary for you. And you've not come to terms yet with the reality that this battle is not yours. The battle belongs to the Lord. The battle for righteousness belongs to the Lord. For us, it's a question of submission. Are we willing? In all of these revivals that I've studied, there is a very clear indicator that a man or woman has been transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Can I tell you what that is? A burning zeal to save others. A burning zeal in their heart to go to a brother, to a sister, to a father, to a mother. A burning zeal to go to a friend and say, Will you turn from your wicked way? Because Jesus wants to save you. Will you turn aside from your way of darkness and destruction And will you let Jesus Christ come into your life and change you? Would you confess your sin? Will you renounce your sin? Will you let Jesus transform you into his likeness? Will you come to the meeting now? Will you come and confess your sin before everybody? And will you be washed and made clean? Boy, you can't stand up and undress your sin. Unless you're awful sure Jesus is going to wash you and take it away and dress you in something a lot better than your worldly looks. Always the first concern of a converted man or woman is the salvation of others. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Does it sound like Jesus when he said, The fields are white, Lord of the harvest? Send forth workers. I was praying about this this week. And it began to sink into my heart. I come from a farm background. We raised quite a few acres of tomatoes. And we would pick those tomatoes very carefully at just the right time. And we would take them to market. And we would sell them 
That was the cash side. But what happens if the fruit is not picked? The tomatoes turn rotten and begin to drop to the ground and they're worthless. Jesus is saying people are a crop that I want brought into harvest. And if they're not harvested, they're going to drop to the ground and they're going to be corrupt and rotten. And the doors of hell have countless numbers being swept in every day because most who call themselves Christians are about their own business and not about the business of Jesus Christ. And many who call themselves Christians have not won a person to Jesus in the last year. When Pastor Dan stands up in front of the congregation Sunday, he should be able to look at a family. And sitting all around that family should be a crowd of people that family has won to Jesus. And this place, if that were the case, would be so packed out, he'd be holding six or seven services every Sunday. All of us have a circle of friends that we influence. All of us know lost people. But do we care enough to save them from going to hell? Have we enough fire of God from the altar? Do we have enough fire from the glory of Jesus seated on the throne of mercy? Because you know what? Jesus is not going to sit much longer on the throne of mercy. He's going to change and he's going to go to the great white throne. And there it's going to be judgment time. And if your name is not written in the book of life, you will be bound hand and foot and literally physically carried by the angels and cast into the fire. That's what the scriptures teach. An endless hell, an absolutely full salvation. That's what the scriptures teach. So right now is the time for Christians to open their mouths and begin to speak about the glorious work God has done in you and begin to say to people, please, will you come? Will you come and hear the word of God? Will you let the Holy Spirit change you and transform you? Will you leave your sin? You know, one of my greatest sorrows that frankly I weep over are the number of men and women who have slipped through my fingers and gone to hell. Men and women I tried to rescue, but they were so slippery I couldn't get my hands on them. A young man, just this week, I talked this morning with him. Pastor, I'm not coming back to church. I've decided I'm going to go on my own. God is not doing for me what I want him to do. He's not answering my prayers. So I'm going to go do it myself. I said, oh, don't do this. Don't do this. You're accusing God of being unjust, of being unfair, of being hard. You're accusing God when it's not God, it's the devil. You've got your people mixed up. No, I'm going to go do it on my own. Now, I'm praying, God, don't let this young man slip through my fingers and go to hell. Has anybody slipped through your fingers and gone to hell? Does that cause you sadness of heart like it does me? That's so sobering to me. Now, granted, every person is responsible before God. But the Lord did say to Ezekiel, if you warn a sinner... 
and he does not heed your warning. His blood is not on your hands. But I have to tell you, I have some blood on my hands tonight. And I've had to repent before God for the blood on my hands because I was too cowardly, too self-centered to speak up and confront them with their wicked condition and call them to serve Jesus Christ. I was afraid of offending them. Well, I'm not much afraid of offending people anymore. I've offended just about everybody I know. (laughs) I want to save somebody. I want somebody to rise up and shout and praise Jesus. This is about Jesus, not about you and me. So he says, here am I, send me. Now, this is the message, and it's not a very nice message. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. This people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. He says, go tell them, you've chosen to turn your back on Jesus. I said to this young man this morning, don't spit in Jesus' face. Don't take the side of the devil against your Lord. He loves you. I pleaded with him. He would not listen. He said, for how long, O Lord? Verse 11, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. You know, he's talking about Babylon being the army coming in and destroying Israel and burning Jerusalem. What a horrible picture. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps when they're cut down. So the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Now we're talking about Jesus. And if you go to Isaiah, the 11th chapter, verse 1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. You know, Jesse is the father of David. So a a shoot is going to come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, with innocence, he will judge the needy with justice. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. And the wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. This is heaven. This is Jesus. Jesus is that shoot coming up out of the stump of Jesse. And the Holy Spirit fell on him when he was baptized. And he doesn't judge by human perspective. He judges with righteousness, with innocence. So Isaiah is commissioned by God to go and share the message. The message that God will send a Savior, that he will be the Savior of the world. 
And we now, many years after Jesus, have the glorious task of sharing the same message that Isaiah shared, except now we can talk in concrete terms about what this stump of justice is and what this shoot is. And it's the glorious righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we now have the privilege of saying, you can be made righteous as Jesus is righteous. You can be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. You have that privilege before you. Now let me just talk to you for a minute. All that I've said to you tonight, I think you will testify, comes straight from the word. And it's true. What we need is this fire to come and burn in our hearts. What we need is this fire of this God who is seated high and lifted up. There should be some smoke about you. There should be some burning about you. There should be a filling of the Holy Spirit in your life. There should be this glorious zeal and burning fire in your heart. That fire as it comes, it sanctifies a person. It burns out all the dross. It burns out all that is unknown in our hearts that is still of darkness. It burns out the old Adam nature. We're not going to subdue the old Adam nature. It has to be utterly removed from us. It is burned out by the Holy Spirit bringing the fire of God in his mercy and grace. Now, I hope you hear tonight everything I'm saying is specifically coming as the gift of Jesus Christ to your heart. If you do not have that burning zeal for God in your heart, then that's the place to begin to pray and ask the Lord to send that fire, that burning fire, that that coal off the altar of burnt offering could touch your lips. Everything is governed by what you say. What you do is out of what you say to yourself. It's the self-talk that has to be transformed. I know what some of your self-talk is. It's hopeless. I can't do it. This is hard. It's impossible. God's never going to deliver me. I guess I just have to do the best I can do and get by the best I can get by and I'll be depressed. Are you kidding me? That's pretty dead end, isn't it? That's a denial of the power of Jesus. There's not a snare that Jesus is not willing to break open for us. There's not a sin he's not willing to remove from us. There's not a a bondage he is not willing to set us free from. But it starts as we begin to plead for the fire of the Holy Spirit to begin to burn in our hearts, to begin to transform our thoughts, to begin to change. You're not going to change your thinking by discipline and by hard work and by effort and saying, okay, I won't think that anymore. That's like trying to say, you know, here's the money machine, put a dollar in, crank the handle, and a $100 bill will come out, but it'll only work if you don't think about the red monkey. So everybody's going to crank it and think about the red monkey, and a dollar bill's going to come out. 
You can't, you can't change your thinking that way. Our thinking is transformed by the fire of God as a gift of grace, as a gift of mercy. I know so many of us are products of our culture, our framework of thinking, our methods of operation. They're just what we were taught and what we've observed and what we've picked up from those who are around us, from mom and dad, from aunt and uncle, from bosses, from co-workers. We're a composite of all of that garbage. No, we've got to spend time in the presence of Jesus in the prayer closet. And we've got to begin to catch that vision of that awesome God high and lifted up in the temple. And know, and know, he's on the mercy seat. Please don't ever walk into another worship service and be humdrum. Well, this is just one more Sunday. No, it's not. Presence of God is here. The glory of God is present. If you can't see the glory of God, it's because you're blind. The glory of God is there. Where two or three gather in my name, he said, there I am. So is he a liar? No, let God be true and every man a liar. Presence of God is here tonight. Do you sense the presence of God? Do you sense any of the fire and the burning of the presence of God as he begins to move in your heart and say, let the hope of your heart rise up. You can be set free in Jesus. He loves you. He died for you. He will move the sin out of your heart and out of your life. He will release you. There are very specific sins that we need to be careful of. Now, my wife and I have talked much about this, so she's not going to be embarrassed by my talking about it. I've been asked in the last week by two men, is masturbation a sin? And I've asked the men the same question. I have asked them, when you are in this act of sexual lust, do you think about a new car? Are you kidding me? Of course not. But what are you thinking about? Is your mind blank? No. What are you thinking about? A woman? An image? And Jesus said, if you look on a woman and lust, you've already committed adultery. You're already hellbound. Now, how does a man deal with his sexuality without sinning? Oh, now we're getting touchy, right? How do we deal with our sexuality, guys? And women have the same issue, just not as much. How do we deal with our sexuality? Didn't Jesus create sexuality? Wasn't it a gift from God to express tender love and mercy toward our partner? And if we don't have a partner, isn't that love and tenderness to be expressed toward Jesus? So it requires an understanding that if we are walking in the sins of lust, the sins of anger and bitterness and rage, if we're walking in the sins of arrogance and pride, if we're walking in the sins of ambition, if we love money 
and that's our goal, that's our God, the fire of God is not going to come into our hearts and we're going to be caught in a spiral of shame as men and women. Now, did the Lord offer a way of deliverance? Yes. He knows who we were created to be. He knows the temptation of the flesh, but he also knows the power of his love and the power of his blood and the necessity for us to absolutely face squarely whatever the sin is that binds us, to name it before his face, to confess it and to turn from it and to say, okay, it's done. By faith in the blood of Jesus, it's done. I'm not going back there. Now, that may require you getting rid of the Internet. It may require a number of things you have to cut off. You cut off whatever you have to cut off so that Satan does not have access to your heart and to your mind. What I'm trying to say to you tonight in very simple terms is this. We serve a mighty God, a God of such mercy and compassion and grace, and he does not leave us to muddle along in our foolishness. He comes in mighty power and offers to us the glory of righteousness, of innocence. The word justified was an old English word. It meant to be made righteous. Dikasune, in the book of Romans, interpreted as declared wrongly. Righteousness was declared in the old covenant by the blood of bulls and goats. But in the new covenant, the blood of Jesus is no longer declared. It makes righteous. There has to be a coming up to faith in our hearts tonight. There has to be a coming up where we're willing to say, Lord, make me as holy as a man can be made holy. I've been praying that a lot these last weeks. Lord, make me as holy as a man can be made holy. I don't want to walk in rebellion against my Lord Jesus. I want to walk in one ship with him. I glorify in his name. I worship him with all my being. He is everything to me. I love him. Oh,
RevivalNow.Church. Revival in Woodbridge. RevivalNow.Church. Revival in Woodbridge. RevivalNow.Church. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Come join us at NationalPrayerChapel.com. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, with great joy. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to Present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Christ alone.